Well, good morning to you all, and good morning to those who are joining us online as well. It's great to, uh, to have you with us. We haven't forgotten that you're there. <laughs> I know, I was homesick last week, and I know what it's like to not be able to be here in person as well, and so we just, we miss you guys as well, and so thank you for joining us online, for those who are joining us there, and for those in person here, if we haven't met yet, I would love to try to connect with you uh, just after the service, just to say hi and introduce myself. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Dave, I'm our lead pastor here at Summit, and I'm really excited to be um, Moving into this series, uh, this is our second part on our uh, Being Human series, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes for today. And, and Jacob did a great job of starting us off last week, and uh, he actually worked through Ecclesiastes with our youth and young adults in the spring of this last year, and uh, was able to bring a lot of, you know, the things that he reflected on and bringing those into our series, and I've really benefited as well. So thank you, Jacob. Uh, he's, he's had notes from the past that I'm, I've been drawing on and learning from as well, and so this is a great thing to be able to, to uh, work as a team like this in our preaching. Now, um, I've been in, I've, I've, I've crashed a sum total of one car. Let me tell you about it. It was 1982. It's a long time ago. You're doing the math. How old is this guy? Uh, it was 1982. My mom had put my brother and I in our old, I think it was a Chevy Malibu, uh, started it up, because this is back in the days of carbureted vehicles, where you had to warm them up in the fall before you could drive them anywhere. This was also before the days of, I mean, if they had kids' car seats, we didn't have them. So we just kind of wandered around in the car when we were kids. And um, one of the things I remember is, as my mom put us in the car, we're being there, good kids sitting in the seats, and she heard the telephone ring, like those loud, you know, those rotary phones that were really loud. She heard it ring, ran in to grab it. You guys sit there? Cool. Great. No problems. But I'm two, and driving cars, that's got to be the coolest thing ever. So I'm, I'm on the, you know, the bench seat, standing there with a the big manual steering wheel, like pretending to drive, and I bump the shifter, which was right here at the time, into drive. And the car begins at that high idle to go down our long farm driveway at this point. Now my brother, five years old, 1982, like any five-year-old at his age, Superman is the biggest thing in the world. And so he decides, I am going to save my younger brother from certain death and fiery end gets out of the moving car, opens the back door, grabs the bumper because he's going to stop this thing. Superman can do it. He saw it on the silver screen. Anything is possible. He's dreaming big. He loves his brother. And I love that he did that for me. Of course, I dragged him across the driveway like this uh, with his toes going, uh, a, a body along there as he held onto the car and I crashed it swiftly into the back of my dad's green Ford truck in our, uh, one of our barns. I tell you this story because Aaron, my brother, in his five-year-old mind was acting in that naivety like, you know what, I can really shape and change the world and what's happening around me. And now, we may not be performing out of a sense of five-year-old naivety, but if we're honest, we've, we still may find ourselves buying into the idea that if only we can exercise mastery or control over our situations, over what's going on in our surroundings, then we can shape things in a direction where 
that will, will give us the satisfaction we're looking for in life. We can make a name for ourselves. We can stand out as exceptional. We can finally experience that deep and elusive sense of meaning and fullness that we're after. Now, when we stop just to consider what it means to be exceptional, to be like a superhuman, like my brother was being, a superman, a superwoman, um, exceptional doesn't mean the same thing as excellent. See, the desire and the drive to be seen as exceptional while laying underneath of that is a dark impulse. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter called The Great Sin. And if you've read it, you know what he's pointing to. The great sin, in Lewis's words, is pride. And, and he helps, he gives us a helpful definition of what pride is. It, it, it's not about talent or beauty or smarts. It's not about having things. Here's what he says it is. Pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're only proud of being richer, cleverer, or better looking than the next man. So this desire to be excellent, that's not the same as the desire to be exceptional. To be exceptional is to be the exception to everyone else, to be above average, above others. I was going to say, and in my better judgment, I didn't, as Bill and Dad would say, most excellent, uh, 80s kids joke, and nobody got it, which is fantastic. That's why I didn't say it. Okay, let's move on. Uh, a few years ago, um, a group of researchers in Canada developed a, a survey. They did a research study to look at young adults and their use of social media, uh, particularly and technologies in general, and the impacts it was having on mental health and relationships. So in this renegotiating faith report, um, they asked these people questions about their Christian faith and how that related to these different areas, one of the key findings was like a constellation of anxieties or fears that social media didn't create, but it has accelerated. And um, here's what the report says. The authors say several young adults said that the purpose of social media posts is to present yourself as a unique individual who does not lead a routine life. Did you catch the end of that? Does not lead a routine life. Like the point of it is to develop this persona, to push it out into the world and to show just how exceptional you are. Another young adult says it like this. They quoted, it's almost like social media creates an airbrushed life that makes everybody dissatisfied. And this leads to what the scholars called comparison anxiety. It's a constant kind of looking at others and what they're doing and what their lives look like, especially what they look like on social media, and then sensing this comparison between us and the, uh, the envy that rolls out from that. I'm measuring myself against others. And, and that comparison anxiety kind of comes to its, uh, its head, its apex, in what they call the fear of not being amazing. It's that sense that with so many people watching my life, I need to perform a persona that looks like I am not average. I'm just not the mundane, everyday person. I'm something spectacular. But the fear part comes from it as well on the flip side, because what if I fail? So I've got to perform this thing and look amazing, and yet if I fail, it's not like it used to be. When I was a kid, you know, if you fail at something, your family and friends... They're there, they see it, but they're supportive. 
Now, you fail at something, and it might be caught on somebody's smartphone, uploaded to YouTube, and have millions of views of you failing at something. So, never before has there been so much pressure, especially on young people, to build an identity and then perform it, or so much fear among the results of that process. But today, we're going to find out that uh, although exceptionalism, that exceptionalism isn't new, and our text, this wisdom literature from thousands of years ago, actually helps us navigate this space with true wisdom, God's wisdom. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your great glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite you to open, if you have your Bibles here or your, or your, you know, your app with something on it, <laughs> your Bible app, that's what it's called, um, you can turn to Ecclesiastes. We're going to start chapter one again, but we're going to pick up from verse three. So Ecclesiastes one, verse three, you at home can crack your Bibles as well. Come on, join us. Here we go. What do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun. Good question, right? What really are we accomplishing? The writer asks. Verse 4, generations come and generations go, but, whoa, stop, but. It's a contrast word. He's setting up a contrast here. What's it between? Generations come and go like people, even whole groups of people, cohorts, they come and go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and then it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the stream comes from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. Actually, a better translation might be this. All things are hard at work. The whole thing that God set up is operating, and it's hard at work doing its thing. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, that's something new. It's already, it's, pardon me, it's, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And then here's the clincher. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come, like your kids and grandkids, yeah, will not be remembered by those who follow them. That last verse, sobering stuff, especially if it's true. And folks, it is true. The teacher isn't handling us with kid gloves here, but is being brutally honest, really, where we need to hear it. We might come with a list of objections now to what we just read, right? But in order to really hear what God is saying through this text, we have to just take it seriously on its own terms. So let's look closer for a minute. First, we need to deal with the objections and arguments we want to bring to this that we just read. I mean, there's, there's a few memorable phrases in Ecclesiastes. This is one of them. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, people still quote that within our kind of general um, lingo in our culture, right? You still hear that phrase. There's nothing new under the sun. But of course, we could object by saying like, come on, what about the iPhone 13? But is it really that new? Um, 
the iPhone 13. I, I mean, that, 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 that's new. Or we might say, you know, there's, there's other uh, new people. Like, there's never been one of you before. Okay, okay, yeah, that's, that's true. There's never been one of you before. And of course, there are technological advances and inventions all the time. Like billionaires, they don't buy fancy cars anymore. They buy spaceships. And for goodness sakes, William Shatner himself is now an astronaut. That's new, right? So we, these objections would be totally legitimate if technology or new people are what the teacher is talking about. But he's not. <laughs> so we ask, well, well, what is this nothing new under the sun? What is the, the, the focus of that? Well, remember, context is key to understanding anything. Uh, last week, we, we, we noticed, we looked at the fact that the word often translated as meaningless in, in uh, like the NIV, some modern translations, is the word hevel in, in Hebrew. And it doesn't mean void of any meaning. It's also translated vapor or a breath, or smoke in other places in the Old Testament. And so as we saw last week, the teacher, um, the teacher says life is havel. It's like smoke. It's meaning easily, um, we can't grasp it, we can't control it. It's meaning often eludes us. Like smoke too, life is fleeting. It's just, it's a breath. It's like, it's gonna blow away more too. Like vapor, Havel includes actions that have no permanent impact or impression on reality, as scholar even Ian Proven puts it. So this nothing new under the sun is not about inventions. It's the teacher saying this, God is the creator. You are not. You are not going to add something new outside the realm and the boundaries of the God-given creation, something without reference to what came before. Only God baraz. Bara is a, is a Hebrew word for to make without reference to anything else. Humans are never said to bara in the Bible. We asa, that's to make things and shape things, but never bara. That's only God can do that. So again, you, you're not going to shape something without reference to something else. And this is the point of it here. You will not achieve, make anything that God has not already provided everything for, the raw materials, the creative spark, the intelligence. You cannot break out of the regularities of nature. Human life is fleeting. And if you set your heart on exceptionalism, of thinking you can master your destiny, that's an illusion. It's something that will elude your grasping. Now, I like how uh, Jacob summarized it when he was teaching through this with our young adults. He talks about this. He says, exceptionality, that's trying to be the exception to the rule of the cosmos, of what God has made. By accomplishing something new, original, and amazing, that will win the attention and admiration of others. The teacher of Ecclesiastes shows us today that this pursuit of exceptionalism is, in the end, futile because there is nothing new under the sun. And that's the point that we need to see today. And it's why we need this wisdom. It's why we need to be realistic about our actual size and impact when we look at actually all of history. It asks us to think really truly about, will I have a lasting mark? And is it that which makes me a somebody? 
So this text, it warns us against this, the the high, high hopes kind of approach to life. And some of you will recognize that's a a lyric, a song title from the band Panic at the Disco. They're really reflecting a common perspective in our world. Uh, They said, had to have high, high hopes for a living. Didn't know how, but I always had a feeling I was going to be that one in a million. Always had high, high hopes. And that song is catchy. It is inspiring. And it gets better. Mama said, fulfill the prophecy, be something greater, go make a legacy, manifest destiny. Like, get out there, kid, you can do anything you want to. Be exceptional, be the one in a million, be above the others. Sounds nice, right? But is it true? More, is it good for our humanity? The teacher, the inspired author of this text, and thus God himself says to us, not so fast says when we stand back and look at the big picture, we are just this tiny speck, this blip on the map of history. Eventually, no one's going to remember you in the under the sun human frame. I know. I know it sounds depressing, but honestly, this is so incredibly liberating. This is good news that opens the door actually for more good news, the good news with a capital G. Uh, I saw this meme this week. It wasn't in my notes today. Sorry, Bruce, if you're looking for this, uh, you're not going to find it in the, in the things. But I said it to my wife. It was just really funny to me. Um, this person writes, going as a former gifted child for Halloween, this, uh, for my Halloween costume, uh, is just going to be people asking, what are you supposed to be? And me saying, I was supposed to be a lot of things. Some of you might be able to relate to that. You got these high, high hopes when you're a kid, and then you get older and you go, yeah, I was supposed to be a lot of things. Here I am. Look at verses three and four again. It says this, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? That's the controlling kind of question of this whole section. What do people gain? What do you gain? What are you going to get from it? Generations, like whole groups of people come and go, whole generations but the earth remains forever. And in verse 11, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the totally uncoddled, eyes wide open, let's just be honest here, view of your life. And here's the so what. Here's why it matters so much for us to hear today. The teacher is saying, you know what? Uh, We might think that we can make this like lasting impact with the work of our hands. It's going to have permanence. It'll win us a sense of true, lasting achievement. Something we can point to and say, see, I did it. I'm exceptional. I'm worthy of love and attention. But you know what? Throw yourself into that with those sort of expectations and you will end up hating life, despairing of it. And so we are warned off of over-expecting from chasing exceptionalism And that's true wisdom. You go, why? Because it protects us. Protects us from investing our work and achievement with an unrealistic set of expectations that will fail us. I think that will even crush us. Look at chapter two. The teacher uses this kind of example. Um, he, He borrows this king of Jerusalem persona and speaks about how he did all these great things as a king. Like, I built beautiful palaces. I I filled it like these amazing gardens. I filled it with servants. I didn't deny myself a single pleasure 
including sexual pleasures. He says that too. Then he goes on to make this fascinating admission. Look at verse 9. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Oh, wow. What a claim. Greater by far? He says, I'm the most exceptional person in the history of the most incredible city in the world. Here I am, folks. This guy's got it all, and he knows it, and so does everyone else around him. But here's the really instructive part. Look at verses 10 and 11. He said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. So he looks at it and says, okay, this is this reward. I can kind of enjoy this. Great. <laughs> but then, look at verse 11. Yet. I actually think the word yet or but is maybe the most important word in the Bible. <laughs> okay, all this, but, yet, contrast. Like, I can see what I've got. I, I can see what I've done. I can enjoy it, but let me stand back and analyze it. He says, yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, here it is, I take a step back, I look at it, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless or was vanity, was vaporous breath that can't be grasped, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. There's his answer to the question, what do people gain for their toil under the sun? He says, I tried it. Nothing. You're not going to get what you thought you would. There it is. That's the wisdom we need today. Get it all. Get it all. All that your heart, you thought you longed for, and it will not satisfy you. Your achievements, you think they will be enough to make you feel like, yes, I'm finally a somebody. They will not. They will fail you in that. Dustin Kensrew, we actually were going to sing one of his songs later on today. He's one of my favorite songwriters for worship leading stuff. He writes this in one of his songs. Though all the wealth of men, of men were mine to squander, and towers of ivory rose beneath my feet, were palaces of pleasure mine to wander. I mean, it sounds like he's, that sounds like what we just read in verse in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, right? That sounds like the king. I got it all. He says this, if all of that were the case, the sum of it would leave me incomplete. Though every soul, and he talks about honor, though every soul would hold my name in honor and truest love was always at my side, this is kind of romance in view, my praises sung by grateful sons and daughters, like I've got this heritage I can point to, said my soul would never still be satisfied. It is not enough. It's not enough. And he goes on to summarize and fill in the end questions as it never was. If you think your value comes from the work of your hands, that maybe I can make a lasting impression, but what happens if you fail? What happens if you can't do it? What happens if it doesn't last? Are we a nobody then? Like consider even the, the effects on our mental health. Um, Bayung Chul Han wrote a book called The Burnout Society. He writes this, the complaint of the depressive individual, nothing is possible, can only occur in a society that thinks nothing is impossible. Do you see that? Nothing is possible when you say everything is possible, then when, when you don't hit the everything, when you, don't, when, when you think that it's going to achieve for you something it's not, it leads people to despair. Nothing is possible, to fatalism in that sense. But this is the 
the wisdom of God's word to us through Ecclesiastes, it breaks the illusion that nothing is impossible. It tells us that's just not true. There's nothing new under the sun. You are not gonna get what you think out of the work of your hands. And when these illusions are broken, then we're open to the truly good news. You see, if we look at the work of our hands and says, I, I'm valuable because I've achieved, I'm exceptional even, I'm, I'm worthy uh, to be propped up. I can know I'm a somebody now. But when that becomes the measure of our worth as a human, we actually dehumanize ourselves. Listen how. Again, Bayum Chul Han, he sees our society as one of achievement in which, self, in which we self, ex, which we, exploit ourselves for production. He writes this, the society of laboring and achieving is not a free society. It leads to a society of work in which the master himself has become a, sla a laboring slave. One exploits oneself. Really? <laughs> and is it that destructive? Is it that enslaving? I think the answer is actually yes. This is the work underneath of the work, uh, as Tim Keller has called it. When we use our work, our drive for achievement to, to actually not give us kind of, you know, put food on the table for our family or roof over our heads, but to give us a sense of meaning and lasting satisfaction and fullness, it just doesn't work. It leads to burnout. But here's the good news. We don't actually have to go that route. You don't have to. You don't have to. Isn't that good news? The rest of the story, as it unfolds in the Bible, it leads to this ultimate good news. And so the answer is this. It's to rest in what Jesus has already accomplished for us. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, God the Son comes to make us actually new. He does a new thing that we couldn't do on our own. He says you don't have to earn your status. It comes to you as a gift. You are mine we belong to him through simple faith. By opening yourself up to what I say of you, Jesus tells us, to what I've done for you, uh, you no longer have to give in to the impulse to achieve in order to have a sense of I'm worth something. Like the prodigal son who had spent his half of his father's inheritance trying to fulfill his life and fill himself up, as he comes back with all these excuses about why he should just be a slave, the father runs out to him, throws his own robe over his back to say, you belong to me, puts the ring on his finger, the signet ring to say, you are part of the family, you are not a slave, you are my son or you are my daughter. Have, have you embraced Jesus' embrace of you? That's where it starts. We can rest in what God has accomplished for us. So what's the take home? Well, it's this, few things. If we embrace what God is saying through this text, we will finally able to just relax, to cease striving, as the psalmist says. Uh, the NIV translates it, be still and know that I am God. The NASB is a bit more of a formal or wooden translation. It says, cease striving. And then Bruce pointed this out to me. He said, oh, check out the footnote in the NASB. And I did, and I found out that the, the Hebrew word rafa means to let go. Let go and know that I'm God. More, even better, it's hilarious. The word can be just translated relax. God says to you and to me, relax and know that I am God. I love that. 
You can relax and cease striving for exceptionalism or for achievements, for believing that unless you make a permanent mark that people can underline throughout history that you're a nobody. You don't have to believe that. We are free to live as humans within the realm of God's reality, just to be fully human and fully alive to him. And that includes embracing our limitations. Ian Proven, I, I love how he says it. He says, the universe is not designed to contain gods and heroes, but mortal beings who accept the limitations that have been set upon their lives and get on with them in quietness and humility. Those are not virtues of our culture, are they? Quietness and humility. But listen to how Paul instructs the, the believers in, in, in Thessalonica. He says this in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition. And now we know something about ambition in our culture. We know what ambition is. That's about drive and what you really want in life, okay? Right? What's our ambition to be? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. I love that. Like, really? That hardly sounds like anything ambitious to us. But that's what Paul says. He says, make it your life goal to lead a quiet life, to get down to the work that God has called you to with what's right in front of you. Do that. Also, mind your own business. I love that piece. Um, for a season while I was doing my doctoral studies, uh, a guy named Carson Pugh was my mentor, and, and he was leading this um, leaders retreat for pastors and spouses, and he was doing a series of talks where he looked at different stages of life, especially for Christian leaders or leaders in general. And he made this interesting observation. He said, you know, leaders in their 20s and 30s are, are often plagued with this desire to achieve. And the big problem is, is, is like it's looking with envy at what others are achieving around you at the same stage of life. And you think, why am I not getting that promotion? Why am I not getting that book deal? Whatever, you, you name whatever that happens to be. And he begins unpacking this, and, and I could resonate with what he was saying. I was in my 30s at the time. And um, here's what he said to us. He, he didn't say, hey, guys, all things are possible. Chase your dreams. Just hunker down and work hard. You'll be that one in a million. No, it wasn't the high, high hopes vision. He had one word for us. He said, relax. Like, dude, just chill out. That was his word for us, the whole thing. I've got one instruction for you all. And he wasn't saying, don't try anymore. He wasn't suggesting that we just kind of like back off of our work. He said, no, work hard. But the goal of your work is not to stand out. It's not to be the exception, the one who's above, the one who's noticed above others. It's not to be remembered. You will very likely not be the next Charles Spurgeon or Billy Graham, or whoever it is that people in other areas of work happen to, like, put on a pedestal. Maybe it's Nobel Prize winner. Maybe that's what you're gunning for. You want to be like that. Or the next hockey great. And even if we weren't, it, it wouldn't give you enough. It wouldn't give you what you're looking for if you were to pursue that. So what he was also saying was, stop looking at the pastors down the street and comparing yourself to them. God is doing what God wants to through them and through you. Focus on being faithful. Work hard, yes, but don't work out of anxiety. Don't work out of fears of not being amazing, especially. And that can apply to every single one of us. So I want you to think about, just for a moment, we're just going to take like this little exercise and, and ask yourself, like, who am I tempted to be looking at 
and, and maybe I'd never say it out loud, but in my heart, I'm competing with them. I'm, try, I'm trying to be seen as amazing over and above that person or that group of folks. And then ask yourself, in what sense am I being tempted to play that comparison game? And then the follow-up is this. Am I ready to hear the word of Psalm 46 that says, relax and know that I am God. Let go. <laughs> Let me be the one who's at the center of what you're doing. Because truly, when we do that, then all of a sudden we're free to actually get on with loving other people without any kind of competition or pride getting in the way of that. More too, here's what I've found. The more I lean into that kind of living, the, the, the more I say, you know what, I'm not going to compete with anyone, I begin to actually celebrate the achievements of others around me, those whom I'm tempted to be in competition with. I can say, wow, that's amazing. Look at the way God is working through you. Praise be to Jesus for that. And you're free to actually allow others to be different and do their things and do them with excellence. I like how Eric Ordland put it. And this is for all of us. He says this, do not set your hopes on leaving a permanent mark on the world. That's what Ecclesiastes means by there's nothing new under the sun. You're not going to make a permanent mark there. It's going to wash away. Don't set your hope on that, on leaving, you know, your work, uh, a mark on the world for your work, or you will burn out, he says. Only God knows the end result of your work, not you. Just enjoy what's at hand. He goes on, serve others with everything you have, Ecclesiastes 9.10, without worrying about the end results or of being envious. Verse, chapter 4, verse 4. And you know, I, was just, I said this in the first service too, but envy doesn't look good on anybody. It's just an ugly thing. And man, I, I hate it whenever I see it creep up in me. It looks so ugly to me. I just want to be done with that, right? Just, that's what he's saying. Don't, don't be envious if others excel beyond you. God has apportioned all manner of absurdities under the sun. We might not know why that person excelled and we didn't maybe in a particular area. He's, God, God's in charge of that. Don't worry about it. Leave the results of your work with God and keep your eye on the plow in front of you. Since God placed mastery outside our reach, right? Havel, that's what we're working with. Simply enjoy the good things as it comes. It's our illusion of mastery and our identification of the value of our work and our lives with this mastery from which Kohelet, or the teacher, seeks to deliver us. Do you know that deliverance? Do you know that freedom yet? It can be yours today. Maybe you're asking, well, how? How do I apprehend that? How do I move into that? A couple points here. One, consider Jesus. We read that after like his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, we, we, it says this, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. But Jesus was not teaching in order to be seen as amazing. Look what it says next. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Now, Ian Proven had mentioned in his class notes that Jesus was seen as distinct from the other teachers of the law at his time, not because he was aiming at being amazing, but because he was being faithful to the things that God the Father had called him to do. He was embodying what the scriptures were about with faithfulness. And that's what we're called to, to faithfulness. It's not exceptionalism. That's not what you're called to. You're not called to be above anybody else, not to making a mark on the world either. 
as surely as our footprints in the sand on the beach wash away when that tide comes up, as surely as those footprints wash away, so too the work of your hands will not be remembered in generations to come. That's the sobering reality that the book of Ecclesiastes tells us we need to grapple with. But there's something beautiful about this too. As we're faithful, we seek to love God, to love others around us, to do the tasks he's called us to, we can receive that with joy. The teacher who's concerned primarily to help us live wisely on this side of eternity, he says it like this, a person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So this is not only don't seek exceptionalism, that's the negative command. There's something positive too. It says find satisfaction. Like enjoy what God has given you right in front of you right now. Have you got half an hour to work on the project that your, your, your team has for you? Enjoy it. Give yourself to it. Be present to it. Are you a parent with, with little ones and you're making them a snack? Be there with them. That's the thing God has called you to right now. Enjoy it. Be present. Are you a student? God has given you the opportunity to read and think and write. Do it all in, right there in the moment. Find satisfaction, says God's word in our moment. And, and the perspective of the teacher, even though it's just for this life that he's talking about primarily, it actually spills over to what Jesus teaches us about kind of keeping the, the, the eternal in frame as well. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 26. He says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? Like run yourself ragged gaining the whole world. What will you gain if you do that and yet you forfeit your soul? Like you don't actually give yourself to God and what he's called you to. Seek to gain the whole world, you'll miss it all. The whole point of life, in fact. Seek to live with joy in God and you'll get all that you ever needed in him. So live with joy and gladness now. Listen to how the teacher says it in 9 verse 7. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Now that is a great verse. Uh, my new life verse, I think. Um, <laughs> but seriously, this is going up in our home. Think of it. There's this joy that we can live with in the everyday ordinary, what we might call even mundane, and that word already, that's striking. God has already approved what you do. How could that be? Well, assuming, as the writer of Ecclesiastes does, that we are living with the fear of the Lord and, and with the commandments, uh, like living out what God wants us to, assuming that, here's what Eric Orton says. He says, I take Kohelet, the teacher, to be saying that before we achieve what we want to in our work, if we even do or ever do, God is already smiling on us. God is pleased with us, irrespective of what we do or do not accomplish. Isn't that freeing? God is already smiling on you. You didn't accomplish your goals? Great, that's okay. God is already approving what you do so you can enjoy life. Rue said it well in staff meeting. She said, we often have this addiction to other people's approval. And when that's our goal, we lose sight of actually desiring God's approval. We are tempted to want people's praise more than God's. And she's right. And that's what the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is really all about. 
Remember the final words, the, the summation of this book, it ends like this in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of mankind. To fear God means to revere him. It means to care more about what he thinks about you than what anybody else does and then line myself up with that. When we do, we can know that God already approves of what you do. And how do we develop and nurture that? This is just the final, uh, something you can practice, you can take with you. How do we develop and nurture that perspective when our world and even the bent of our own heart often pressures us otherwise? Well, we often talk about spiritual disciplines in the Christian life. This is things like you're just sitting and reading the scriptures and meditating on them daily. Uh, communing with God in prayer and just with silence and, and being with God in that way. But there's another practice I just want to just point out for one more second, and that is Sabbathing. I know adding the I-N-G sounds all wrong, but just hang with me for a moment. Sabbath means to rest. It also means enjoyment. Like when God Sabbathed after his work of creating on the seventh day, this is Genesis, um, it wasn't resting because he was tired. God doesn't get tired. To rest is to cease working. It's to cease working in order to enjoy what you're looking back on. When God rested, he said, this is super good. I love what I've made. And so then God enjoys that thing. And when God asks us to Sabbath, to rest, it's doing the same thing. It's saying, I, I don't need to keep producing to know that I'm a somebody. I don't need to keep producing because God takes care of us. It's a time for us to gather together as God's people in, in worship so we can celebrate what God has done and said, that is super good. Look at the cross. Look what God has accomplished for us. And when we do that, we remind our hearts that our value is not wrapped up in the work of our hands. Our value is a gift from God, the God who loves us, who came for us. It's through Jesus that our work is already approved. Do you know that yet? It's through Jesus that we actually enter into the great Sabbath rest. It talks about that in, in, in the book of Hebrews. Go and read about it. It's this idea that we can now rest from our labors of trying to make a name for ourselves and just enjoy what God has given us, knowing we're secure in him forever. Do you know that? Are you living in it? I'm gonna call the worship team to come. And as they do, uh, I'm gonna pray with you. I'm gonna borrow from the words of Psalm 131 for this prayer. I invite you into praying this with me, making this our prayer as God's people this morning. So let's pray together. In the words of Psalm 131, the psalmist, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Summit Drive Church, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Lord, we say together, we put our hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen.